Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. up guys and gals out there uh today we are going to be looking at third nephi chapter 17 and this is kind of a cool chapter because it tells us a lot about the type of uh, type of god jesus is the type of person that he is the type of uh his own personal capacities and characteristics he's just finished teaching in chapter 16 he's just finished giving this sermon. He gave the Sermon on the Mount, and then he started started to get into the Abrahamic covenant and the old law versus the new law. It started to get pretty heavy. And, uh, and we're going to see that he's attuned enough to the capacity of the crowd and of his disciples that he's called to realize that he needs to slow down a little bit. They don't you know, if we're trying to help somebody or develop a relationship with somebody, it it doesn't work to just talk at them. And um, sometimes we need to build the relationship before our words have the type of impact that we intend them to have. And Jesus, as the master teacher, really perceived that here. So I'm going to just start off in chapter 17 and show you what I mean here. Uh, Verse 1, it says, Behold, now it came to pass, when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked around again at the multitude, and he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. I perceive that ye are weak, and that ye cannot understand all my words, which I am commanded of my Father to speak to you at this time. So, uh, just so we get the tone right here, him calling them weak, right? This isn't like a burn or anything like that. Jesus is, he perceives that they're not following what he's saying. He's got into some tricky, tricky stuff with the gathering of Israel, and it's really important. He can't just talk at people here. They have to get what's going on here, and he knows that they're not quite there yet. So he's going to try and build capacity, okay? He's going to try and help them do the things that they need to do before they can understand what he's what he's there to teach them. Um, so he gives them this instruction in verse 3. It says, Therefore, go ye unto your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name, that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. So that's the first thing that he says is, you know what? Y'all need to go do some work. Um, not just... Uh, take some time, but go ponder. See if the Father teaches you any more. Go pray about it. Go talk about it with each other. Think about how you process things in your life. You get around with people. Maybe sometimes you think about them. You listen to music. Uh, maybe you'll go on a walk. Maybe you'll write in your journal or talk it out with somebody or a group of people. And that's all of those ways. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Go to your homes, think about this a little bit, pray about it. See if something kind of settles on your heart that 
we can build on tomorrow morning. I mean, you think about the type of overwhelming experience that they've had, what they have to process. They're still, I mean, they're still processing this massive destruction that they've all undergone, the loss of loved ones of entire cities, the reshaping of the land, the restructuring of their society. And then, you know, they saw the Messiah appear after being announced by the Father that pierced them to their soul. It shook them. And he started to teach them. He, they felt his wounds. I mean, this is so much to process that he, he's taking his time. He's slowing down. Okay? And um, verse 4 is kind of cool. Uh, he, it kind of, it leaves some mystery in this. He says, but now I go to my father and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel, for they are not lost unto the father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. So he plans to come back tomorrow, but he sees like a little window in there where he's going to go to his father and he's going to show himself also to other lost tribes. And he has this plan. Okay. But then look at what happens in verse 5. It came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude and beheld they were in tears. And did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. And he said unto them, Behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Have ye any that are sick among you? Bring them hither. Have ye any that are lame or blind or halt or maimed or leprous or that are withered or that are deaf or that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither and I will heal them. For I have compassion upon you and my bowels are filled with mercy. For I perceive that ye desire that I should show unto you what I have done unto your brethren at Jerusalem. For I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. <laughs> That is a fantastic part. First of all, Jesus has this plan, and it, we can try and get in Jesus' head and, and be like, well, he, he knew all things. He knew that he was going to do this. He was just, you know, we, we don't need to get into his head. Let's read it as it's written. He has a plan. He's going to go to his father, and the tears of the multitude gripped his heart, like, he felt it all the way. My bowels are filled with compassion for you. That is phenomenal. Their, their need is the very thing that, that holds him there with him, which is fantastic. And he says, uh, you know, my bowels are filled with compassion. Let me heal you. Who are the people who need my healing? And this isn't just going to happen like, one off. We don't know how many people are here, but all the people that need to be healed probably aren't there at the temple. And some people need to get brought. And so this probably, when Jesus says, I'm going to take more time with you because I love you, because my bowels are filled with compassion, I'm filled with mercy toward you. That's saying, I'm going to take time. I'm going to put in energy into you. We're going to build this relationship. And that's also part of Jesus building the capacity. They're going to go home and ponder and discuss things, but he's got to build the relationship. And he's putting in that work right now. 
Um, and that's, you know, their, their plea for him to stay with them, that's their faith being sufficient that he can heal them. That's fantastic. And uh, verse 9, it says, It came to pass, and we thus spoke in all the multitude, with one accorded, go forth with their sick and their afflicted and their lame, with their blind, with their dumb, with all that were afflicted in any manner. And he did heal them every one as they were brought forth unto him. And they did all, both they who had been healed and they who were whole, bow down at his feet and did worship him. And as many as could come for the multitude did kiss his feet in so much that they did bathe his feet with their tears. <clears throat> I've been in uh, religious services where bowing is part of the service. It's part of the liturgy. It's like what you do during the religious service. Um, you kneel at certain points, you stand up at certain points and whatever it might be. I've been, and this is not just, uh, this isn't, necessarily in the church this is i've been catholic services and hindu services, buddhism and stuff like that and they all have bowing as kind of this universal symbol of worship i don't think that this is a part of a religious service in the classic sense they're not necessarily bowing because it's what they're supposed to do they're bowing because it's what they have to do. It's what they're compelled to do by the amount of love and just gratitude that they have for Jesus Christ. They're compelled to bow to his feet, to worship him, to do everything that they can to show him their gratitude, their love, um, to kiss his feet, to bathe his feet with their tears. This isn't a performance, a religious performance. This is a relationship that's being formed between a God and his people and the most beautiful sense of that. And I guess the time, <clears throat> this is a perfect time to just stop and think about our relationship to Jesus Christ and, uh, and what, you know, what kind of person he is, what kind of things catch his attention. I know his, He's mindful of us, but these people bind him to them through their tears, through their gratitude, through their compassion, through their longing. And he stays with them. And he heals them because of their faith. And they get the, the blessing of worshiping at his feet. Now, that's not, you know, we, if we think about like directions, okay? So when one group is doing it to the other group it's going to there's going to be an arrow going from one group to the other group so first jesus is his arrows going elsewhere okay and then the people their arrow goes towards jesus their their energy goes towards jesus then jesus's arrow goes back to the people and he heals them okay and we might think that when the people worship Jesus, their arrows going back to Jesus. And that's that's true. They're worshiping gratitude. But I guess what I'm feeling as I'm reading this chapter is that this is still Jesus's arrow going toward them. This is still him blessing them. It's a blessing to be filled with that much love and compassion toward anybody or gratitude toward anybody. Think of somebody you felt gratitude for. That's not a bad feeling. That, that type of feeling makes your life better. That's a blessing to experience gratitude. 
And this is part of him healing them. Gratitude is a healing thing. Crying in this way, bathing somebody's tears with, uh, bathing somebody's feet with your tears because you're, you love them, you're grateful for them, you want them to stay. That is a, that is a, a blessing to be able to experience that. That's a healing experience. And, um, and yeah, I guess, what does that look like in our relationship to, to Christ? Uh, and what type of relationship or, or behavior toward Christ and, and recognition of Christ uh, precedes that type of relationship with Christ? You know, how long have these people looked for him and waited for him and tried to put him at the center of their lives to where they get to be at the temple at this point, they get to be the ones touching his wounds, and they get to be the ones bowing before him and with the blessing of worshiping. I mean, these are the ones that are carrying people forth to be healed. and I mean, this is phenomenal, but it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. There's always, in these people's lives, there's always context to this relationship, just like all of our relationships. And... Uh, when we think about our relationship to Christ, that I think is an important thing to understand is whatever we expect to happen now, everything before is prelude. Everything before is context. What are we What are we doing now that we hope will develop our relationship to Christ 10 years down the road? You know, like if, if you're listening to this, it means you're in uh, my online in, uh, seminary class. You're in high school, and you probably don't think about yourself as a mother or a father or a spouse right now, but you might be in five years or seven years or ten years, which uh, seems like forever away, but I assure you that it's not. And the capacity that you have to be faithful, loyal, loving, trusting, caring, patient parents, patient spouses, all of those things... That capacity building starts right now. It starts five years ago. I mean, there's always context to the events that happen in our life. And we, if we want events in our life to be beautiful healing experiences, like what these people have right now and their relationship to Jesus, it takes work on the back end. It doesn't just happen. And, uh, and so, you know, in this, in recognizing how beautiful this event is here in 3 Nephi 17, Let's not forget to fill in the backstory in our in our hearts and minds and learn from the backstory so that we can we can seek after similar experiences in our life. I mean, I want that much gratitude in my life. I want to be a person of gratitude. Um, I, I feel like that would be one of the biggest defenses against the chaos of 2020, right? Like it's not just 2020. You know, I got a friend, I think I've told you about him before, who's currently in the hospital. He has a rare form of lymphoma. He is also an elite athlete, um, distance runner. His lungs mean everything for him. But now his lungs are riddled with cancer because he has this lymphoma. He's a young guy. He's just a couple years older than me. His 2020 and his family's 2020 have been... You talk about like a year of complete disruption. That's he's struggling for his life right now and, and inspiring like thousands of people all over the world with his struggle. 
Um, and their experience in 2020, you know, yeah, it's happening in the same year, but it's a unique experience. It's a unique form of disruption. It's not just all of us have our lives a little bit more burdened because of this pandemic <clears throat> pandemic, and we got to wear masks and so forth. Now, their, their experience, it would be disruptive any year. And, um, and oh, he just posted yesterday on, uh, on social media for the first time. And what he expressed was gratitude for all of the people all over the world who had been sending love and care and uh and that gratitude you know i think that that gratitude is is the healing balm um and and he's he's an amazing example of showing gratitude and care for others and at this point in his life where Everything has gone off plan, so to speak, right? He never anticipated being at this point in his life. And uh, practicing gratitude, feeling that genuine gratitude for other people. Um, I think that's healing. I think that that's... And it's an example of, uh, of how we can get through things. I want this type of gratitude that I'm seeing in 1517 in my life. And I'm willing to do, or I hope I'm willing to do, the type of things that cultivate that. And so when we're talking about our relationship to Jesus or with each other, um, let's fill in that backstory and not just act like 3rd Nephi 17 just manifests out of nowhere, but that these people and Jesus, they both had to be doing things that allowed them to be the type of people to feel this type of love and compassion and gratitude toward each other. Um, okay, let's, let's move on in, uh, in verses 11 through, let's see, 11 through the end of the chapter 25, I suppose it is, uh, Jesus does another just really cool thing here. Uh, one of my favorite parts of scripture and, uh, has, has become even more tender for me since I've, uh, been a father it says he came to pass, this is in verse 11, he came to pass that their, that their little children should be, should be brought. And they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him. And Jesus stood in the midst and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought unto him. It came to pass that when they had all been brought, and Jesus stood in the midst. He commanded the multitude that they should kneel down upon the ground. And it came to pass that when they had knelt upon the ground, Jesus groaned within himself, said, Father, I'm troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. And when he had said these words, he brought himself also upon the earth, or he knelt himself also upon the earth. And behold, he prayed unto the Father, and the things which he prayed cannot be written. And the multitude did bear record of him of him uh, who heard him and after this manner do they bear record the eye hath not seen never seen nor hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard jesus speak unto the father 
and no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying unto the Father, he arose, but so great was the joy of the multitude that they were overcome. And it came to pass that Jesus spake unto them and bade them arise. And they arose from the earth, and he said unto them, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now behold, my joy is full. And when he had said these words, he wept. And the multitude bare record of it. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. And he spake unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold your little ones. And they looked to behold, and they cast their eyes toward heaven. And they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven. And it, as it were, in the midst of fire. And they came down and encircled those little ones about. And they were encircled about with fire. And the angels did minister unto them. And the multitude did see and hear and bear record. And they know that their record is true. For all all of them did see and hear, every man for himself. And they were in number about 2,500 souls. And they did consist of men, women, and children. And that's the end of the chapter. Um, let me get my Bible here because there's something popped into my head as I was reading. Um, and as I'm finding this, you know, I think the beauty of this section speaks for itself. When we consider the experience of these kids, you know, these kids have just, they've just gone through hell with the destruction of their lives. I mean, of their families, of their communities. Um, and, and if anybody deserved it, it wasn't these kids that deserved it. And, uh, I remember one time after my, uh, my first son was born, I was in graduate school and I was in this class on religious violence and, and, uh, I, I, um, was reading about this genocide in Sudan and I had read about genocide before and, uh, you know, could kind of hold it at arm's length, but, um, just in my mind, I saw these children that had to live through this genocide and, uh, saw kind of my son in that situation and felt a kinship with these children. And, you know, I just broke down in the, in the class and started crying. And here I am in this, you know, academic setting, just weeping in class. And part of it's that I'm going through this like tender process of becoming a father and feeling this love toward these children. Um, uh, and you know, there's, or it's all kinds of things that you have to go through as a early parent. But um, I see this type of love for Jesus. He has compassion for these kids. He knows that they've just gone through this incredibly hard 
experience and they don't know what it all means. They have they probably don't even know who he is. Like they they don't I can't imagine my well, maybe my seven year old would, maybe my five year old would, my three year old certainly wouldn't. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't suffer because of all of these things and or that he wouldn't feel the love of Christ when when Christ is there ministering, but these kids don't know what's going on. And yet Jesus brings them close. Make sure that everybody gets brought close. He has he weeps, he has compassion on them. He it says he groans because of the wickedness of the house of Israel. And I have to imagine that part of the reason why he groans is in behalf of these kids who had to go through this and kids everywhere who have to grow up in a world where for some reason we can't turn our hearts towards each other and and they don't understand it and luckily i think oftentimes they're able to smile through it and you know like my kids they don't necessarily love wearing masks but we make it fun and they like they have imagination and that imagination and creativity that all children have is this amazing capacity to uh, still live in a world of magic when you're kids and uh, even if the world around you is a pandemic and so these kids no doubt like are the way that all kids are everywhere and they're able to they're being resilient but Jesus knows that the burden is still really heavy on them so he brings them in and he he heals them and he prays with them and I think it's so striking that his prayer in the midst of these kids, surrounded by these kids, is the most sacred prayer. It's the thing that we can't, it's so sacred, it's so holy, it's so precious that we can't record it. Nobody's ever prayed like that, they said. Um, and uh, I think it just says something about how Jesus feels toward toward us, for us, um, and, and sets a high watermark for us, high bar for us. On, as we think about this world that we live in, as we think about our lives and uh, what we're going to do with them in this world, let's not forget the little ones. Uh, yeah, I think we're in this election right now, and I'm not going to get like partisan about it, but a lot of what's uh, being said as nobody's talking about the kids um, and uh, the the rights of children, the livelihood of children, the care of children. It's not as it doesn't it doesn't get as many campaign dollars donated in, I, I guess. Um, but in Jesus's kingdom, the kids come first and come in close. And I love that the church's new youth program has kind of demonstrated that. Um, but just in your own life and in your own kind of understanding of Jesus, if you have little ones in your life, if you have little brothers or sisters, or if you have little nieces or nephews, um, take some time and be with them because I think that there's something particularly special and particularly holy about that. One of my heroes is Mr. Rogers. Um, and the way that he was able to just be with kids and the love that kids felt from him, I think, is remarkable. It's very Christ-like in that way. 
Um, I told you I got my Bible that I had to, I had to go get my Bible because I was thinking about this verse. Uh, our kid, Joel, our youngest, uh, we felt like we named it, we wanted to name him Joel based on this verse. And uh, it's in Joel 2.28. And this is what it said. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Um, that, that idea of uh, kids kids seeing visions of dreaming dreams of prophesying of all of these things. We kind of wanted that as a vision for our, our, our little Joel. And I, I told you that that was Joel 2.28. And uh, kind of without even obviously planning it or anything like that, uh, Joel was born on February 28th. And uh, we had kind of made that decision separate. And it was just a cool little, you know, uh, it was a cool little indication that the Lord was aware of our, our little Joel and um, that that I think the Lord has similar vision for Joel that we, we hope for him, that he can see clearly in a world of confusion and darkness and that he can dream dreams even when the world doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily like match those those dream states, but that Joel can imagine beyond the pandemic, a world where, or beyond whatever disruptions are going on in our life, a world where we can all have healing, where we can love one another, where we can be family, where uh, the type of experiences we have with each other are so sacred and so precious that we can't even describe them. Um, and I hope for that world too. I think that's a beautiful description of Zion. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.